0: Section eight of History of Egypt, volume two by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter one The Political Constitution of Egypt, part eight. The sacrifices supplied them with daily meat and drink, the temple buildings provided them with their lodging, and its revenues furnished them with a salary proportionate to their position. They were exempted from the ordinary taxes, from military service, and from forced labor. It is not surprising, therefore, that those who were not actually members of the priestly families strove to have at least a share in their advantages. The servitors, the workmen, and the employees who congregated about them and constituted the temple corporation, the scribes attached to the administration of the domains, and to the receipt of offerings, shared de facto, if not de jure, in the immunity of the priesthood. As a body they formed a separate religious society— side by side, but distinct from, the civil population, and free from most of the burdens which weighed so heavily on the latter. The soldiers were far from possessing the wealth and influence of the clergy. Military service in Egypt was not universally compulsory, but rather the profession and privilege of a special class of whose origin but little is known. Perhaps originally it comprised only the descendants of the conquering race, but in historic times it was not exclusively confined to the latter, and recruits were raised everywhere among the fellahs, the Bedouin of the neighborhood, the Negroes, the Nubians, and even from among the prisoners of war, or adventurers from beyond the sea. This motley collection of foreign mercenaries composed ordinarily the bodyguard of the king or of his barons, the permanent nucleus round which in times of war the levies of native recruits were rallied. Every Egyptian soldier received from the chief to whom he was attached a holding of land for the maintenance of himself and his family. In the 5th century B.C., 12 Are of arable land was estimated as ample pay for each man, and tradition attributes to the fabulous Sestosterous the law which fixed the pay at this rate. The soldiers were not taxed, and were exempt from forced labor during the time that they were away from home on active service, With this exemption they were liable to the same charges as the rest of the population. Many among them possessed no other income, and lived the precarious life of the fella, tilling, reaping, drawing water, and pasturing their cattle, in the interval between two musters. Others possessed of private fortunes let their holdings out at a moderate rate, which formed an addition to their patrimonial income. Lest they should forget the conditions upon which they possessed this military holding, and should regard themselves as absolute masters of it, they were seldom left long in possession of the same place. Herodotus asserts that their allotments were taken away yearly and replaced by others of equal extent. It is difficult to say if this law of perpetual change was always in force. At any rate, it did not prevent the soldiers from forming themselves, in time, into a kind of aristocracy, which even kings and barons of highest rank could not ignore. They were enrolled in special registers, with the indication of the holding which was temporarily assigned to them. A military scribe kept this register in every royal nome or principality. He superintended the redistribution of the lands, the registration of privileges, and in addition to his administrative functions, he had in time of war the command of the troops furnished by his own district, in which case he was assisted by a lieutenant who as opportunity offered acted as his substitute in the office or on the battlefield. Military service was not hereditary, but its advantages, however trifling they may appear to us, seemed in the eyes of the fellows so great, that for the most part those who were engaged in it had their children also enrolled. While still young, the latter were taken to the barracks, where they were taught not only the use of the bow, the battle-axe, the mace, the lance, and the shield, but were instructed in such exercises as rendered the body supple, and prepared them for maneuvering, regimental marching, running, jumping, and wrestling, either with closed or open hand. They prepared themselves for battle by a regular war-dance, pirouetting, leaping, and brandishing their bows and quivers in the air. Their training being finished, they were incorporated into local companies, and invested with their privileges." When they were required for service, part or the whole of the class was mustered. Arms kept in the arsenal were distributed among them, and they were conveyed in boats to the scene of action. The Egyptians were not martial by temperament. They became soldiers rather from interest than inclination. The power of Pharaoh and his barons rested entirely upon these two classes, the priests and the soldiers. The remainder, the commonality and the peasantry, were in their hands merely an inert mass, to be taxed and subjected to forced labor at will the slaves were probably regarded as of little importance the bulk of the people consisted of free families who were at liberty to dispose of themselves and their goods every fella and townsman in the service of the king or of one of his great nobles could leave his work in his village when he pleased could pass from the domain in which he was born into a different one and could traverse the country from one end to the other as the egyptians of today still do His absence entailed neither loss of goods, nor persecution of the relatives he left behind, and he himself had punishment to fear only when he left the Nile Valley without permission, to reside for some time in a foreign land. But although this independence and liberty were in accordance with the laws and customs of the land, yet they gave rise to inconveniences from which it was difficult to escape in practical life. Every Egyptian, the king excepted, was obliged in order to get on in life to depend on one more powerful than himself, whom he called his master. The feudal lord was proud to recognize Pharaoh as his master, and he himself was master of the soldiers and priests in his own petty state. From the top to the bottom of the social scale, every free man acknowledged a master, who secured to him justice and protection in exchange for his obedience and fealty. The moment an Egyptian tried to withdraw himself from this subjection, the peace of his life was at an end, he became a man without a master, and therefore without a recognized protector. Any one might stop him on the way, steal his cattle, merchandise, or property on the most trivial pretext, and if he attempted to protest, might beat him with an almost certain impunity. The only resource of the victim was to sit at the gate of the palace, waiting to appeal for justice till the lord or king should appear. If, by chance, after many rebuffs, his humble petition were granted, it was only the beginning of fresh troubles. Even if the justice of the cause were indisputable, the fact that he was a man without home or master inspired his judges with an obstinate mistrust, and delayed the satisfaction of his claims. In vain he followed his judges with his complaints and flatteries, chanting their virtues in every key, Thou art the father of the unfortunate, the husband of the widow, the brother of the orphan, the clothing of the motherless, Enable me to proclaim thy name as a law throughout the land. Good Lord, guide without caprice, great without littleness, thou who destroyest falsehood and causest truth to be, come at the words of my mouth. I speak, listen, and do justice. O generous one, generous of the generous, destroy the cause of my trouble. Here I am, uplift me, judge me, for behold me a suppliant before thee. If he were an eloquent speaker and the judge were inclined to listen, he was willingly heard, but his cause made no progress, and delays counted on by his adversary affected his ruin. The religious law, no doubt, prescribed equitable treatment for all devotees of Osiris, and condemned the slightest departure from justice as one of the gravest sins, even in the case of a great noble, or in that of the king himself. But how could impartiality be shown when the one was the recognized protector, the master of the culprit, while the plaintiff was a vagabond, attached to no one, a man without a master. The populations of the towns included many privileged persons other than the soldiers, priests, or those engaged in the service of the temples. Those employed in royal or feudal administration, from the superintendent of the storehouse to the humblest scribe, though perhaps not entirely exempt from forced labor, had but a small part of it to bear. These employees constituted a middle class of several grades, and enjoyed a fixed income and regular employment. They were fairly well educated, very self-satisfied, and always ready to declare loudly their superiority over any who were obliged to gain their living by manual labor. Each class of workmen recognized one or more chiefs, the shoemakers, their master shoemakers, the masons, their master masons, the blacksmiths, their master blacksmiths, who looked after their interests and represented them before the local authorities. It was said among the Greeks, that even robbers were united in a corporation like the others, and maintained an accredited superior as their representative with the police, to discuss the somewhat delicate questions which the practice of their trade gave occasion to. When the members of the association had stolen any object of value, it was to this superior that the person robbed resorted, in order to regain possession of it, it was he who fixed the amount required for its redemption, and returned it without fail, upon the payment of this sum. Most of the workmen who formed a state corporation lodged, or at least all of them had their stalls, in the same quarter or street, under the direction of their chief. Besides the poll and the house-tax, they were subject to a special toll, a trade license which they paid in products of their commerce or industry. End of section 8. Read by Professor Heather By.